0: Well, thank you so much, Sandy, for for joining me today. Uh, really excited to to talk to you. And We had a, a stellar previous conversation, so I'm really happy to you know discuss in depth what we what we chatted about before. And so so talk about your journey before maybe your career path and journey before uh, R Equity.
1: Well, thank you Grant for this conversation. Um, yes, I, I think we had fun on that previous conversation. But yes, interesting place to start. So I grew up uh, in different parts of India. My father worked for one of India's largest nationalized banks, It's owned by the government called State Bank of India. So it was a transferable job. My mother was in education, still is an education. And so basically, rural, urban India, the North, the South, a fairly mixed upbringing as a consequence. I eventually then did law. And after I finished my law, I practiced corporate commercial law for about seven odd years, um, and then came to a point where I felt I needed to do something different. Perhaps I was a little bored with law, where the end purpose seemed to be a better document. Uh, I wanted to have some more purpose, some more meaning, and then decided to pivot completely out of law. And I guess maybe maybe my legal education had some influence at the time that I was in university, uh, the place I went to, which is the National Law School in India, uh, talked about producing social engineers as opposed to lawyers, maybe that was part of the influence. Mm-hmm. But I think more importantly, just upbringing All over the country and the conversations at home, including a boarding school stint, all of that led to perhaps that kind of a choice. And so I left law and uh, entered the microfinance space to start off and then eventually into impact investing. So kind of that's a quick summary of my upbringing and early professional career.
0: Let's talk about Elevar and and what sort of its mission and vision is and You know, it's sort of elevating, I guess, maybe a little bit what you learned in microfinance, maybe take us through maybe what you learned from that those years doing microfinance and maybe how now you look at maybe, you know, VC is sort of this, you know, next level stage of what microfinance can be for Latin America, India.
1: We started investing on a simple premise that there are ideas, products, services uh, where a for-profit approach would make sense and what a for-profit approach could help on is fundamentally build scale. Uh, reach a larger footprint of people who had the needs and wants for essential products and services. Um, And so you could build a fairly robust business, but also deliver something that was very important to low-income communities. So I, I think that was the broad canvas. And we In our early days, certainly wanted to demonstrate that a commercial model was possible to be able to achieve that. Microfinance is where we started. That was our early investing trajectory. But over time, through the combination of what we learned in the microfinance sector, maybe a couple of things through some difficult investments that we made outside of microfinance, I think what subsequently became and what we call the Alibar method of investing, which we apply both in an Indian context and the Latin American context to, to your question, really emerged. So let me, if you've got a few minutes, let me yep. just try uh, use two constructs uh, that I often talk about. Uh, so one is a construct of how we invest, and the other is a construct of how we work with entrepreneurs to build really large, scaled-up companies. So I'll take them in order. So the first one is how we invest. So we spend an incredible amount of time on the ground, understanding the needs and aspirations, wants of low-income communities. I mean, I like to call it immersion in some respects, but there's a lot of time that it's spent having those conversations. It's not market research, it's our own experience on the ground, talking to families, households, uh, individuals within lower income communities, both in India and in Latin America. Once we understand those needs and aspirations, and we're really looking at where the expenditure is, where is the income coming from? So, the wallet of the household, if you will, we're then looking at what are the essential products and services that low income communities are prioritizing for themselves. And there's no rocket science on that. You know, it's financial services, they want education. So, the needs are standard, but how to deliver those needs. What are those aspirations? And then the question of whether a business model can deliver the right quality at an affordable price is the fundamental question that we're trying to answer from an investing standpoint. And if we check that box and say, yes, it's possible, then the question is, who is the entrepreneur who has perhaps domain expertise, has real execution experience, perhaps in a large organization, was a C-level individual in a large organization come to a stage in their career where they want to apply their experience, their background to build an organization which is their own legacy, creates some more impact in the world. So finding that right entrepreneur. And then because that product or service, which is essential, so we know there's customer demand within low-income communities, it is affordable, it's at the right quality, and we're adding on an entrepreneur who can build real scale. Then, like I often like to say, scale is our commercial imperative, it is our impact imperative. It gives us both. We reach potentially millions of households uh, as a fund. And in addition, uh, we can build up to the right levels of profitability so that uh, we can have a successful enterprise on our hands from an investment standpoint. So that's a broad construct, but some subtext of that is how do you consistently add value to the end customer is a very big part of what we do. And it then leads into post-investment where the real work starts is how do you think about growing organizations. Um, and that's the second broad framework, what I sometimes call our portfolio management framework. We tend to go in early. And the reason we go in early is that we can then work with entrepreneurs to build the DNA, which is focused on low-income communities. You don't have to think about pivots of business models, so to speak, from middle income to low, or from high income to low, uh, you can just make sure that the company is built with that requisite affordability premise right from day one. So we go in early... We typically will deploy somewhere between 2 to $5 million at that stage. The goal is to demonstrate that that product and service can be delivered and the unit that is delivering that product or service to the end customer can break even within a 12 to 18 month time period. We need that within 12 to 18 months because we're operating out of a fund cycle. So we need to see the scale within the life cycle of the fund. If we get that right, we then go into the second phase. Uh, You're typically raising a series B at that point of time. We are investing. We may be bringing in a new investor and you're building out the organization for scale. So senior management, risk management, governance, um, any technology enhancements that are necessary. All of those dimensions are brought in. Ideally, 5 to $10 million series B, you're uh, taking about 12 to 18 months again. And then so effectively somewhere between 24 to maybe 30 months approximately, you have what is quite interesting, uh, a robust business model because you've proven out your distribution unit economics in the first phase, and you now have an organization to scale. And so you can just go after the market opportunity as a consequence and create a lot more impact and a robust enterprise, which is Truly scaled up and adding the value that we would like to see for low-income communities. So these are the two frameworks we actively use.
0: There's a there's a bunch to unpack there. One would be some topics around scale, uh, and then the other would be. I think the first I'd want to tap on, and maybe the 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 two's kind of parallel together. The focus on India and Latin America is that because the potential of scale is very similar because of population size and sort of the lack of technology being embedded at like foundational levels in in those regions around the world?
1: Interesting question. Uh, Let me take the second part and we can come to, you know, the broader scale question. But I think sometimes good strategic choices are driven by internal considerations as well as market considerations. So the internal considerations, partnership of of Elevar comes from these two regions. So Mm -hmm, that's the internal dynamic. We grew up in these markets. We understand these markets Of course, we have different funds which play to different strategies, but we fundamentally, you know, those are our two markets. But you're absolutely right about the external dynamic. Because we are premised on this affordability and significant scale argument, uh, we do necessarily have to operate within markets which have the requisite density of population, if you will, and that kind of a market condition in terms of the need and opportunity as well. So those factors have to come together. And that's perhaps the reason we focused on these two markets. Over time, I think we've just built deeper and deeper expertise in these two markets. Uh, They've evolved in very interesting ways, in many ways very similar, in many ways very different. If you really think about that trajectory and operating in a truly global diverse team of approximately 25 people, which are sit in Mexico, the US and in India, it's actually quite a fascinating, melting pot of perspectives that exist internally at about looking at the question of how to build scale from an impact standpoint and from a commercial standpoint. Across these two regions, which are very different but yet very similar in terms of the customer need on the ground and the potential business models that can deliver Ooh. that customer need, so that's really the the, the framework for India and Latin America. Uh, but you you had a question on scale also, so happy to reflect yeah. on that. Yeah, I think
0: I think because we we mentioned it a, a little bit and sort of you know, back and forth thus far. And and it's such a, I think it's such a, a term, it's such a used term in, in many conversations that you have in your industry and, and I have with founders is is that word, you know, breaking that down a little bit of, of sort of what that means in different areas, I think is, is important because everybody talks about scale, but it's, it's, how would you define it? And how do you look at like, what makes scale a success for you, right? You're in that, if you say you're in Latin America and you have a product around fintech right and those was 12 to 18 months how do you analyze scale right and then how do you how do you determine if something is working you know or not is it a month to month growth metric of just like users and obviously if it's a b2c product versus b2b those will be different metrics but i guess it, maybe take a perhaps even an example from a portfolio company i guess how do you look at scale and and successful and maybe when it's not successful right what does that look like and what are some of the determining aspects of of how to define scale for you guys
1: wow that's that that packs a lot into that question (laughs) and you're absolutely right it is it is such a used word and uh, it's not very clear always what people mean by scale let me let me try and approach this because it's i'm 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 thinking as as you ask the question so let me try and approach this the other way around. And then I'll hopefully cover many of the sub-points that you 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 asked about. Repeating the point that scale is our impact imperative. So we'll keep the commercial imperative aside. Let's focus on the impact imperative. In every fund, we typically look to make maybe 12 to 14 odd investments. And we would like to reach through the combination of those investments, whether in India or in Latin America, a combination of somewhere between 10 to 15 million households, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that come from these low-income communities. So there is, there, is, there is some analytical framework as a consequence when we, we do need a certain size as a fund. But individual investments will have different scale ambitions because the business models are by very definition different. And even if you take a one sector, you can't assume that two business models within the same sector have the same kind of scale metrics. Uh, so I think that's a very important aspect is that you need to be very clear in the context of an individual investment. I think one of the things that we spend an incredible amount of time, pre-investment and through the investment, it's not so much about a month on month, month on month, you may track numbers, but we're big believers in what are the business metrics that speak to business, obviously, but also the business metrics that speak to customer value and the impact that we want to see in the ground. Because if I, I, you know, I've long held this bias, and this may be, foolish, this may be naive, but in my conversations with, you know, successful entrepreneurs, if you will, but even entrepreneurship in general, it is very difficult for entrepreneurs to kind of like optimize for multiple metrics you know you say 20 mm-hmm. metrics there may be 20 metrics that are relevant to the business there may be 100 if you will yeah but to optimize the organization for scale you can't really pick more than three to five metrics you need to know what your primary focus is because you wake up every morning i mean even as an entrepreneur uh, at Elevar, I mean there are key metrics that one looks at and so you wake up every morning thinking about those metrics. So you, it's kind of three to five metrics. And I think what is when things, how do things come together through a scaling journey? In an ideal world, you know your customer well enough and you get to know your customer even better in that first 12 to 18 months phase. And you identify the business metrics at that point of time and you're able to show a trajectory till a break-even point at an operating unit level. So that distribution economics gets established. Then you, of course, got the organizational framework. But through this journey, you've really identified your three to five metrics that are really going to demonstrate that you, can, that you are indeed adding value to the customer, as well as you've got the commercial journey going at a very, very fundamental level, because you need to succeed uh, for the organization in every stakeholder standpoint, including the end customer. And then you just scale those metrics at a very, very fundamental level. Some metrics may change over time you may over time emphasize profitability more than you've emphasized it earlier at a corporate level. You may say that I've learned so much more about the customer. So my customer metric has gone through an evolution. So I think it's about the business metrics that speak to this point. But there's another dimension, which is very important, Grant, is uh, organizational design. And Mm. we've learned that in maybe, I would say, in hard ways over time is that The business metrics need to correlate also to a simplicity of organizational design. And there needs to be clarity on how organizations roll up uh, so that you know that every layer within the organization is optimized to a commonality of thinking. But more importantly, is also organized in a way where you're consistently adding value to the customer. It can't be only the CEO thinking about a certain set of metrics. Those metrics need to roll down, and what's happening on the ground needs to roll up. So the organizational design, what's the structure, who reports to who, where are the PNL, where is the PL emphasis? All of those aspects need to be also thought about, and then ultimately, who are the people? Um, and getting the people right is, in some respects, opinion. yeah. <laughs> so
0: I'd like to to stay on it for a second. What I'm sort of been passionate about, and kind of, I'll, I'll try to. It'll be a long question, of course. It's my seems to be my specialty. So I apologize for that. But I I look at we see sort of how technology has obviously touched the world. And it seems for the last sort of, you know, let's say, you know, 20 years ago. So the really investment has been how can we make products for you know people with disposable income? Right. That's There's right. a sort of easy business model. Let's use the best best technology in the world to you know build products for that population and i think what i'm most passionate about is like how do we use the great greatest technology we've ever built as humans to really uplift nearly half of the world right that live on two dollars a day right or i mean there's billions of people that sort of technology has not sort of embraced quite yet and i guess maybe because the business model they haven't sort of figured it out quite yet but i want to talk about scaling impact And, and and i think that's been a very difficult thing to try to digest is how do we scale up eradicating poverty, scale up eradicating, hung, you know, the destruction of, of hunger, right? How do we scale up, you know, education to you know, really high level education to the world, and so on and so on. We, you know, there's so many issues in, in these communities that technology, I think, can, you know, scale impact is how I look at it. I guess my, my question would be is, it's a tough one, but like, how do we do that? In, in, how do we look at VC or private equity investments, whatever it may be as a real opportunity to not only make money, which I think is the thing that we've we've been reluctant to do right? We say, hey, this is a non nonprofit problem or thing to solve and making money off solving societal issues has looked down be down upon, but making money off the destruction of our you know environment has kind of been like okay to do, which is really a weird thing right it's like we left it up to nonprofits to figure out the really hard systemic problems in society and left vc to kind of put money in things that you know are gaming or something like that which is fine right but like there's such a disconnect right so i just want to like how do you think about scaling impact right And, and scaling you know these issues that face society
1: yeah that's a that's a lot of ground to cover uh very complex big questions that, that you asked. And, and and I could not agree more that these are some of the larger questions that the world is beginning to address and needs to address a lot more going forward. So let me try and pick up a few different threads. So one is your comment about nonprofits and for-profits. And I fundamentally believe that there is unnecessary disconnection between those two worlds. There are so many issues under the sun where there is no business model that can even remotely address that. So that is the role of nonprofits. That is the role of government. Um, And that perhaps approaches a certain segments of population, certain income levels. Uh, So there's a combination of the product or service and there is the combination of disposable income to be able to even buy a product or service. I think we have to be cautious on that front. You mentioned hunger. Uh, if there's a business model that addresses it from a food standpoint, somebody needs to pay for the food. So you're automatically dealing with the segment of the population, which may have tiny bits of income, but at least can pay, then you can think about affordable food. Uh, Mm -hmm. But a set of the population which cannot even have that much disposable income, then you do need an alternate structure. So, I I I I am uncomfortable when people talk about the separation of these two, or even when say, oh, non-profits, oh, they don't scale and they are capital constrained, and so therefore I want to go to impact investing. Impact investing operates in a different context, and the work that non-profits do, even impact investing, very often is standing on the shoulders of giants within the non-profit space. So I think I don't I I would say We have to just recognize the role of nonprofits and the Mm -hmm. role of impact enterprises, if you will. But of course, all of this is in the continuum of what you're asking, which is a larger question, which is uh, the relevance of investing strategies, the relevance of capital uh, within a broader context of a better world and a better planet and all of those kinds of contexts. And the fact that so much capital is historically moved only in search of a return uh, without any other dynamic and so has it been extractive in nature whether with people uh, or with the planet but are there other methods that we can think about so let me let me posit something out here which hopefully you know at least can can make some kind of a dent to the conversation I genuinely believe that you know if people the, the, the mass of people who are, don't have access to essential products and services is one big challenge that exists in the earth. And if the other big challenge that exists in the earth is the environmental dimension and climate change and all the issues associated with that, we have to be inclusive before we can be green. And perhaps yep. we've come to a point yep. where maybe it's not even before we need to be end, but we certainly have to be inclusive, we just can't be green, or vice versa, because there's not yep. much point to say, we're going to solve something on the green side, but we're going to continue to exclude a few billion people. Yep. On the planet. Yep. So that's, that's another false dichotomy, if the non-profit for-profit world is one way that we need to actually learn to work with each other. I think this dimension is also the other dimension. We have to be inclusive to even have a hope to address the green dimension. So I think that's the second point that I would make. The third is, I think, your question about what are the problems that have been solved and how is capital been used and should capital move into much more fundamental problems? I would say yes. I mean, that's been 15 years of our journey of trying to attempt that so as a consequence what are we when we started our journey we all came from commercial backgrounds if you look at everybody on the team they're all people who come from commercial backgrounds reach a certain stage in their career and saying i want to use my skill set for something better and therefore i become an In as a consequence trying to invest uh, towards that end so what are what are we trying to achieve we're essentially saying we want to use capital to solve something fundamental on the ground. And we think that this notion that you have to look at impact completely separate within an enterprise and the business completely separate in the enterprise is also the third false dichotomy which exists uh, in the world. There is a way to look at business metrics which answer both sides and you can be thoughtful about how your capital is going to be deployed towards creating that better world, whether from a people or from a planet standpoint. Now, our strategy has specifically been around the idea of essential services. So we are focused very as a consequence on things like education, agriculture, MSMEs, and financial inclusion in a broader sense. It's a very sharp focused definition of impact. But irrespective, the method that we use of business metrics can work. So I'll, I'll break it down for you. On the impact side, there are three business metrics that we always look at. So one is Who is the customer segment? So we call it our community metric. Who? How do we know that the company continues to focus on the community that we believe they were set up for, they have the vision for, and they have the aspiration and the ambition for? And so what's the business metric that we can look at for the purposes of knowing that they continue to focus on that? So if it's an education company and we want them to work with an affordable school, what percentages of, of the schools that they're working with are affordable by very definition. So we have two companies in the education space. One is a lending company. The other is an operating company. The former is called Vartana. The second is called Lead. And both have clarity on what is the definition of construct of the kind of schools that they want to work in. And that's our community metric. The second piece uh, we're really calling it is we call it our business model metric, but it's really the customers customer stickiness. How do you know that you're adding value to the customer? What's the business metric that can mm-hmm. uh, show you that you're continuously adding value to the customer? And one example could be a referral rate. You have delivered a product to, this, to the particular customer, the customer loves it without providing them with a financial incentive. Are they willing to refer their neighbor to actually also get the product or service? So referral rate could be a very interesting metric to think about from a you know, customer stickiness business model perspective. The third is straightforward. It's what everybody does within the nonprofit world as well as in the for-profit world which has impact as its ambition is the scale number. How many people have you reached? Now, when you put this three together and you kind of apply it into any kind of business model, I would argue that these three along with maybe anything else that any individual organization wants to focus on will align capital. Now, we've, we've deployed something like 220 odd million dollars of our equity into companies directly. The total co-investor capital that's come into the portfolio is north of $2 billion. And a significant majority of that capital is mainstream commercial money coming into these companies. Hmm. But when they're coming in, there's obviously a conversation about who's the customer, what's the alignment, because they're typically following us. They're not necessarily, the bulk of that capital is not coming along with us because we tend to go in very early. And so we're really focusing on the alignment question out there. And in general, if you're clear, an entrepreneur and the existing investors are clear with an incoming investor on what the business model is, who's the customer, what are the drivers of growth, and you're very clear about that and you can consistently deliver that, I actually think large pools of mainstream capital do align. So we've not necessarily seen what people in my space call mission drift as a consequence within the portfolio coming from investor dynamics. And even if they do come up, there is a broader board, there is a governance structure which understands what the DNA of the organization is. So I think there are ways to address this. They're not perfect, but there's certainly ways to address these challenges. Uh, and hopefully we've innovated a little bit to be able to lay that ground. We need to also continuously push ourselves as we look to scale our own journey. We've reached something like 45 million odd households plus minus uh, over the last 15 years. I think the big question is, how do we reach a significantly larger number uh, as we think about the next 10 to 15 years in our evolution, which okay. is a question for us to address.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about those, you know, let's say 10 to 15, last 10 to 15 years and some of the portfolio companies, if you don't mind, yep. of sort of what they have done or what they have accomplished, some real world examples, maybe a couple from, you know, India and a couple from Latin America.
1: Happy to share some thoughts on the portfolio and uh, move relatively quickly because I'll give you different examples, right? We, we have an agriculture company in India called Samunati, which works with agri enterprises. And and in addition, what are called farmer producer organizations, it's a unique corporate structure that India provides for a farmer owned enterprise to provide value to farmers who are the shareholders of the company. Uh, And so they work with these kinds of organizations to reach small and marginal farmers to be able to bring agri commerce as well as agri finance, uh, to be able to scale up and improve incomes, livelihoods, and the you know, the margins of farmers as a consequence. The company has built very, very interesting scale. We just love that company. I mentioned Lead School. It's, uh, it's an education company focused on educational outcomes, measures itself by educational outcomes at an individual child level. But the way they do it is by bringing a combination of a technology solution, as well as textbooks and curriculum and methodology and pedagogy, all of that into the classroom into an affordable school classroom where they're able to enable a teacher who has very limited resources to be able to drive impact as far as her children are concerned and really be able to support that teacher to be able to provide a great educational outcome. So they have a teacher app, they have a parent app, they have a school administrator app, and there is a complete interface in terms of what is the work being done in the classroom? What is the work that needs to be done at home? How does the school administrator view the entire school? And how are we achieving the educational outcomes? And there's a business model premised on that whole thing. They today are working with 5,000 odd schools and are scaling dramatically as a consequence. Mm. Those are two really solid examples. We have a Uh, We have multiple, we've got MSME in the country. We work with a few MSME finance companies. There's a company called Uh, IndiFee. There's a company, we work with somebody who's doing two-wheeler finances in the country and is at the cusp of the electric revolution as that starts emerging to be able to finance that and create the ecosystem associated with that. So uh, it's a company called Bike Bazaar. Uh, So this is kind of the India portfolio. On the LATAM side, uh, we have a company called Nuvem Shop, which the best way to think about it is In many respects, you can think about it as an e-commerce platform. But Mm -hmm. I like to say an e-commerce platform, which is built and constructed to add value to the MSME that is making products or services to find market linkages and then build the payment infrastructure and build the necessary pipes for Mm -hmm. them to find markets as a consequence. So the emphasis of it is a little different. Think of it as perhaps the Shopify of Latin America in some respects. Again, a very successful company out there. We have a company called... uh, Credit Husto out there, which is MSME finance and leasing play in Mexico. Again, doing extremely well. Mention a third company out there is a company called Favo, who works with individuals within communities to aggregate demand for basic groceries, and then be able to supply them at the right quality and at the affordable prices by people who are inside communities. So if you look at all our business models around, everything is actually not a top-down model. In fact, all our business models are, and we're looking for entrepreneurs of that kind, who are thinking about everything bottom-up. So you start with the customer, what's the interaction point with the customer? How do you leverage technology out there? That piece. And then you go through the organization and kind of like build it upwards. So Their DNA is consequently very, very different, and that's something I think we've really been able to show uh, can work uh, through the success uh, of some very, very wonderful entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, I think we we touched on uh, a little bit of of how the relationship between you know nonprofits and you know allocators of capital or venture capital to how maybe they can they can work together you know better to help you know scale certain things. I want to talk about maybe another you know partner that. (laughs) <laughs> has its, I guess, pros and cons can be difficult, obviously. And that's sort of uh, governments, yeah. and whether it's sort of local and maybe at a higher level in, in certain regions. Have you had conversations with, with government? I just think that when you look at startups, you know, in cities, especially, you know, in, in America, where, where sort of I'm from, there sort of hasn't been this, to me, like just really in-depth sort of trying to partner together to do certain things. I mean, sometimes like, hey, come build your your cars here, right? Like these sort of big projects that get on TV, you can cut tapes whatever, but at a real sort of startup level, right? Early stage startups and and investing, you know, a million into a local company or something like that, that has real chance to to kind of help their citizens, right? Like how has this been the relationship maybe or just conversations with, with governments, whether it's India or Latin America, have those been fruitful? Have those, I guess, what's your take on sort of private, public sort of partnerships to help, you know, scale a lot of these things we're talking about?
1: No, that's a very interesting question. And, and, and I'd broaden it from saying just governments, but also to regulators, right? I yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's the construct. I may be a little counterintuitive on this, but in my view, you know, it's I've just generally found, at least within the Indian context, that regulatory frameworks are helpful and can be very positive as far as driving change. From a customer standpoint. So I, 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 that's one thing I do want to call out. Secondly, I do think that there needs to be recognition that government does play a role when you are dealing with the impact ecosystem, irrespective of where in the world you're operating. Uh, it could come through pools of capital, which could be, for example, on the debt side, it could come from regulation, which requires other financial services providers like banks to provide credit, maybe right. to a microfinance institution or to another kind of lender that's focused in the market. So there is a lot of that which happens. And it's it's not uh, something that I would say does not happen. In fact, it actively happens. Almost every one of our companies, for example, which is in the financial services space, has borrowed from institutions that are government regulated or or actually government-owned more fundamentally. So I would say that partnership does exist and it's a very meaningful and there is regulation which plays a very positive role as a consequence. I think very often the worry from government comes from what I would call the, the political. And I think the other dimension where the worry from government comes from, if your revenue model is premised on the government pain. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think there is space for that. But I think in a broader VC community, I think you know there's probably more caution when it comes to that. If I were to take the premise of your question and say, where do I see that sometimes operating? But in many of our companies, actually, you see very active positive engagement. You see multilateral money coming into our companies as equity investors, which is ultimately governmental money of different kinds. And so you do see DFI multilateral capital also coming and. As investors into some of our portfolios. So I think there are different shapes and forms of that kind of relationship. It is more complex, but I think there are models which have which work and certainly have been implemented across our
0: world. and keeping on that sort of subject of like, you know, cities and regions, are are there any ones that maybe you want to give give like some praise to, maybe sort of startup hubs within you know countries in Latin America or cities or, or regions or cities in India that have, you know, really embraced. You know startups and sort of the the entrepreneurship sort of journey and mission of of trying to solve problems through through business, right? Are, are there any sort of local areas that you think are sort of just you know hotbeds right now for really embracing the entrepreneurship journey?
1: Well, I, I think maybe a few years ago, I would have like been very specific and say, oh, we see many of our entrepreneurs coming from this region because yeah. of X factor, or because of Y factor. But I, but I but I think we have to recognize that the nature of entrepreneurship, the source from where entrepreneurs are coming is democratizing a lot. It is, yeah. it is definitely coming from all over the world. And uh, if you look at uh, even active pipeline within the India portfolio today that we're considering or are open to considering investments, et cetera. Uh, you're seeing entrepreneurs coming from all over the country. It's not necessarily coming from the five or the six top cities of the country. So that's amazing because fundamentally, you you that means that talent is closer to the ground in terms of the problem statement that they're trying to solve. Now, the question will really become interesting is as you go into these smaller towns and if these organizations start to scale, is how do they attract that talent at scale to be able to build even further scale, which will become the interesting thing is does that talent exist in a small town? But I think in that respect, maybe because we're all getting used to work from home and hybrid work cultures, et cetera, maybe actually now that's going to lead to a proliferation of entrepreneurships and you know leadership that coming from different parts of the world so i actually want to celebrate the reverse i want to celebrate the fact that it's coming from all over and even in very difficult environments even from a regulatory standpoint in some parts of the world or in cities where you don't normally associate with entrepreneurship etc you're seeing the emergence of high quality entrepreneurs and you know it, it's awesome it's just awesome um
0: i'll kind of end on a last couple questions here and- and one would be just, you know, your process as an organization of, you know, choosing who to invest in, you know, whether it's a, you know, is it is it a, is it an email pitch, right? Are you, you know, doing networking events? You know, do you trust other VC partners that present you with opportunities? I guess, how are deals, deal flow coming to you at the moment? And what's the process of sort of navigating the deal flow and actually then choosing, for lack of a better term, you know, write a check, right? And really invest in, in companies. What's that process like for, for you?
1: No, very interesting question again. I mean, so deal flow comes in um, in all the usual ways than any, that any VC would get deal flow. It comes in cold, it comes in through a reference, it comes through an investment banker, it comes through a call. I mean, there are all the various ways that any VC gets. What I particularly love is that we get a reasonable amount of pipeline through our entrepreneurs and Ah, people that we really like and trust. And so uh, we sometimes call our capital human-centered capital. If you ask me, there is a process layer which is very robust and very strong in the evaluation of an investment. But ultimately, if you ask me what really tips the scale is the alignment that we can build with an entrepreneur. And by alignment, I mean two or three different things. So one is we are interested in the problem that the entrepreneur is looking to solve. And we are aligned in the way he's or she is looking to solve that problem. So it could be that because of our own thesis development at our end and the time we've spent in the field talking to you know, low-income communities and the end customer, we think a different approach will work. And the entrepreneur is talking to us about a different approach. And if we can't come to a consensus on that, that actually we share a common vision of how to approach that, we'll pass on that investment. So I think that's one aspect of alignment. But the other aspect of alignment is... Can we work together for five to seven years? And can we have that honest conversation? And how do we know that that can happen through the existing conversations through the investment cycle uh, that we're trying to make? So I would say these two aspects of alignment are very, very important. In addition, of course, you're looking at the product construct. You're looking at the overall quality of the team you're looking at any traction that they may have had at the point that we're considering it. But we go in early, we're very comfortable with raw startups. So maybe, you know, that of course depends on the organization. Uh, We're spending time on their financial model and their projections. So we're looking at all those conventional things. But I will say one additional thing, which we're different uh, grant, we're not, I don't think, I don't think any of us think of ourselves as an investment shop in the classical sense. Mm -hmm. We kind of average three deals a year, and that's through our, Latam capital as well as our India capital on a combination basis, it's broadly about three deals a year on an average. And so even though we're an early stage investor, we're not just doing eight, 10 deals and then hoping for two to succeed. Uh, in fact, it's the it's the opposite. In fact, most of our companies go from stage one to stage two, When I talked about those three phases. Uh, quite consistently and so set themselves up to having the opportunity for scale now whether they achieve scale through the second phase the platform to get into the third phase is a different we actually think of that organizational platform second phase as being more difficult to build than the first phase of getting the distribution economics right so I think our pipeline and our process is really about finding the three plus minus great deals globally where we really like the entrepreneur we have that sense of alignment we think the product construct makes incredible sense. And the distribution strategy that the entrepreneur is telling us is something that we can relate to and believe in based on our own experience in the field. So that is how our pipeline gets cons- constructed. And as a consequence, it tends to be a little bit more proprietary, is the word people use in our space, uh, where it's not, it's not very competitive when we come in, but then other folks tend to follow us through our journey.
0: One more question than, than the last question. And one would be, I think this, I think like you said, that the distribution of where entrepreneurs come from now, and sort of I think this really revitalization of what entrepreneurship is, I think everybody, you know, wants to put their toe in the water, so to speak, and okay. kind of try it out and and maybe, you know, figure something out for themselves. But I want to take it even a step further now and talk about maybe the new investing class, right? I think people are learning more and more about how to invest, what to invest in, but, and more people wanting to get to startup investing, right? Whether that's an angel investor or maybe, you know, somebody has been in uh, a certain industry for a long time and maybe they want to raise money, you know, to start their own fund, right? I guess what's some, you know, simple, maybe practical advice for for the new sort of angel investor, right? Or the new sort of, GP that, that's coming up and, and maybe wants to you know to dip their toe in the water on this side of things and, and really allocate capital entrepreneurs that they believe in. What are some of the advice you, you would give there?
1: I, I don't know whether I'm a good person to provide advice. <laughs> I don't see myself as an investor. But you've
0: learned a lot, right? You know, 15 yeah, well, years in I, it. I, I mean, there's, yeah. there's definitely lessons there, right?
1: Perhaps the one thing I would say, investing is a curious balance between you know things that you know and therefore you can get a sense of comfort and then things you don't know and therefore you take risks. So it's that balance between those two. So I would say for folks like angel investors, et cetera, you see a lot of that capital and people either are going in with a little bit of herd mentality because somebody else has taken the call. But I would say people should build their portfolios based on what they know and then then see what's the level of innovation and risk that they're willing to bear, I would say would be one piece. On the GP side, I think I would say is, is, is clarity on what you're looking to focus on and I think the sharper the focus and the kind of change you want to see through your portfolio is probably a better thing because you then develop deeper expertise and can then be more valuable to the entrepreneurs that you're looking at. I kind of like think of it as you know there's that old adage of uh, the cobbler who sits in the forest and everybody who has a slipper or a shoe problem goes in search of that cobbler. Uh, So I think GPs also need to build expertise and I think that's very important.
0: Last question I have is about the future. And we talked, you know, over a decade, 15 years now, what does the next decade look like from how do you, what are some of your goals and missions, you know, for the next decade? And how do you look at, you know, those, I know the future can be, it can be difficult to predict or right? I didn't even talk about, but are there some, you know, you know, goals you have in mind that, that you want to achieve?
1: So uh, that's, that's the fundamental question that I think we are, trying to answer. Over the last decade plus, we really, really worked hard to establish a method of investing that we call the LMR method. And there's a, it's a very consistent, very deliberate, very disciplined uh, method of investing that we've adopted, which we learned through some mistakes early on, and then you kind of apply it. The question that I think is very, very important is how to address the change we want to see in the world, but given the pace uh, within which we need to see that change, a colleague of mine uh, talks about achieving that change within a generation. And so speed of demonstrating business models that are adding value uh, to the end customer and then thinking about reaching more people through those business models, uh, we can't take enormous periods of time. We have to be able to do more of that quicker capitalize them and build scale as a consequence to be able to reach millions of people so that they can improve their lives in very very basic ways so i think the biggest question for us in the immediate future will be to think about what that means for us as 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 a fund manager if you will uh, but even broader if you take a 10 15 year view hopefully uh, we really fundamentally solved some real issues on the ground, at least in terms of the essential products and services from our standpoint, that we would have well-established business models that work, have become ubiquitous. Everybody has access to them. You know, for example, today in India, everybody has access to a microfinance product. I mean, it's not... Hmm it is fairly ubiquitous, it's commoditized in that sense. And how do you make sure that a quality education product is is commoditized? How do you make sure that, you know, uh, in the context of an agri-supply chain, the interventions you make from a product standpoint are ubiquitous in that supply chain? I think making that as common as possible and commoditized as a consequence should be the goal. Because then we can go to the next order of problems. Because so long as, at least as Elovar is concerned, we, we still see the problem on the essential product and service side, uh, we can't address more uh, different set of problems. We'll continue to be focused up here. So we want to get that much done much faster so that we can move on to a different set of problems.
0: Amazing, Sandy, Thank you so much for for taking the time. Keep on doing the work that you're doing. I mean, it's incredibly important. I think we sometimes we, I think a lot of people just don't know like the importance of, of capital allocators and the decisions that they make. Like you said, you affect 45 million households, right? <laughs> so like your decisions are pretty important. And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's really important to, to talk about, you know, these visions and missions because, you know, what you do matters. And, and I think what, you know, people like you do around the world, it really, really matters and affects society kind of in ways we, we don't maybe perhaps know or, or, or see or, or, or understand at a certain level. So, you know, keep up the great work and best of luck for you and the team for the next uh, decade to come.
1: No, thank you, Grant. I really enjoyed this conversation. If you would bear with me, I will summarize that question on the future that you asked in one sentence. Uh, sure. Just, I think our mission is to establish the credibility uh, of the end customer, uh, that mm. they they do have the capability to demand quality, to pay for it so long as it's affordable, and to, to get the world of capital to understand that it is a credible customer base and you don't have to worry because the resilience levels are just phenomenal in that customer base. But yes, I enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Thank you.